a bit lit, celebrating creativity and research of all kinds. Eleanor, it's so fantastic uh, to see you again. I'm really looking forward to celebrating your new book. Congratulations. Uh, the Thank Middle you Ages. Very much. Book twins. Yay, book twins. <laughs> <laughs> the Middle Ages, a uh, graphic history with uh, Neil Max Emanuel. Um, congratulations on the book. And for everyone watching, I strongly encourage them to, to look at it. And Eleanor, I'm sorry to start with something negative, but the thing that really surprised me about the book is it's called The Middle Ages. And, mm. you know... I'd say that's maybe from the age of 40 to the age of 60 or 70. <laughs> and actually, you spend very little time talking about those particular kinds of, of people. If anything, the, the images tend to depict people a little bit younger and a little bit older. So I know. can we start by just defining this term for us? What, what, what you mean by the Middle Ages? So for the purposes of this book, when we say the Middle Ages, we're talking about the medieval period. And by that, we mean it's very Eurocentric unfortunately. Uh, but by that, we mean from the quote unquote fall of the Western Roman Empire in 476 to question mark, <laughs> which the book spends a bunch of time dealing with how it's difficult to say exactly when the Middle Ages end. Generalized rule of thumb, if you're talking about the 16th century, you're probably talking about the early modern period and not the Middle Ages. But exactly what that means to everyone really depends from place to place. Yeah, that's great. Thank you. And one of the amazing things about the book is it, it it calls attention to and it questions the Eurocentricity. And I'd quite like to come back to that in a moment. And it's so good on probing away at when this period starts, when it ends, and what it means to call it a period, and when we started thinking of it as a period, and what it really does to define a period by saying, well, this is in the middle of more interesting things, which is kind of what <laughs> the term seems yeah. to be. Uh, seems to be doing. So I guess, you know, what we would call in our professional life historiography in the form mm. of a graphic history was really exciting to see. Um, I mean, my first question for you is, as, as someone whose expertise tends to fall on the eastern side of, of Europe, a lot of the Eurocentricity of this period tends to pull towards the west and perhaps to the mm. south. Um, yeah. And I just wanted, I wondered kind of what, what that, how that felt for you writing um, you know, your own your own research is so much more expansive and generous than the way we tend to think about medieval Europe. And yet sometimes the pull is still towards particular places and particular times. Yeah, it's a really interesting one for me in, in particular, because, you know, my as you've noted here, you know, my area of particular speciality is the Czech lands in Bohemia in particular. Um, you know, shout out to Moravia. Sorry, guys. It's just I, I work on Bohemia a little bit more. Um, and that's interesting because for the, you know, from the kind of like um, middle of the of the Middle Ages onwards, that's a part of the Holy Roman Empire. And it's very much a part of that milieu. Um, and indeed, I work on when Czechs control the Holy Roman Empire. And a lot of the way that we think about the medieval period actually is kind of mediated through what the Italian peninsula thinks about the Middle Ages. So, um, you know, the ancient period, quote unquote, comes to an end when Rome falls. And I mean, which what, what does that even mean? <laughs> you know, that's a, which is a big thing that the comic grapples with. You know, so, we, you know, we say that it's when uh, Romulus Augustulus is deposed uh, by Odysseus and 
and okay, fine. But at that point in time, you know, Romans were already ruling out of Ravenna. Mm. Um, you know, the Roman Empire had already been split into two. The Eastern Roman Empire in Constantinople goes on into, you know, the 15th century. So how do we know that Rome fell? You know, there are all these questions about it. And indeed, the idea that there is kind of like a new modern era is kind of ushered in again by Italian sensibilities in the you know Renaissance, uh, moving on later, and and that is generally um, a kind of infomercial in order to sell Italian art that is specifically about whinging about the fact that Italy no longer controls all of the known world, and so you know that things are bad because Italy isn't controlling it, and. You know, interestingly, what we we tend to really buy this line from Italy, and you know, my argument, which I I make in in the comic as well, is that our willingness to buy into Italy's line on this one is because when that was all happening, we were doing a big line in colonialism and imperialism, so we were like, oh yeah, things are really a lot better when you have big empires that are full of slaves. That's when stuff's nice and good and you should like big empires full of slaves. That's just what's good. And you don't need to pay attention to any of the point in time, like where checks are important at one point in time, just don't talk about that, you know? And so there's this kind of like willingness to overlook um, the middle ages in order to like absolve ourselves of the things that we're doing and to kind of like go along with this Italianate empirical imperial, not empirical, <laughs> line of things. Um, and I kind of try to get to the heart of that, but it, it is really interesting, you know, as, as someone who works in my line of history, because, you know, the entire medieval period for Czechs, the way they're very important, you know, the way that they are talked about by everyone. Like I was just um, reading about a Princess Anne of Bohemia who becomes Queen of England again the other day. And so she is the daughter of the Emperor Charles IV and she gets married off to the English crown. And there's all this hand wringing at the Czech court because in the first place they had to go send a Duke over there because they were like, where's England? Have you, has any, have you, have you guys heard of this? No. Okay. Look, we're going to go, we're going to go check it out. And a guy goes like, they send like a uh, Duke Spitinov off or something like that. And he comes back and he's like, guys, it's a place. And everyone is like, you can't send a Czech girl there. Wait, like they only speak like two languages and one of them's English. That's not a language. <laughs> like everyone's just making fun of England. Right. And so th like, that's what I study. And it's interesting because now we're just like, not, nah, none of that's, none of that's relevant. It's all about, you know, England and Italy and France and there were never any other countries and but I still have to work within that line because of how society works I guess <laughs> and also I, I presume um evidence um that the evidence for that early period in particular we have so much more discourse coming at us from from Italy and kind of uh, places that were central to the western Roman empire Mm -hmm. I mean, that's the thing, too, is that it, one of the biggest issues that we have with the medieval period in general is source survival, just because it, it was rather a long time ago, uh, to be fair. And, um, you know, so we do have better records and that sort of thing from places that were important in terms of the Roman Empire because they had more scribes. You know, they just were more geared um, towards that. And indeed, a lot of places like so, for example, again, the Czechs, they're not actually um, literate until into uh, the early modern period, the early modern period, the, into the later early medieval period, however you want to define that, kind of like 7th century, 8th century, that's yeah, when yeah, yeah. we start getting literate. Um, you know, Cyril Methodius had to come up and have a chat with us. It was fine. Uh, but uh, it's, it is interesting because we also kind of like place... Um, 
obviously our own modern sensibilities on that. We're like, oh, well, something is bad if it isn't, if a society isn't literate, then it's it's bad. It's not good. And I mean, it's like, well, that's not true. But of course, it's very hard to study mm. um, because if we don't know what people are thinking, that's the benefit of literacy is that I can look at, you know, something that someone's written and say, oh, OK, well, this is what this guy thinks. And I can analyze that if there isn't anything for me to look at, I cannot. And so that's the thing is that the the Italian city states and everybody they have really good records. Um, the French have very good records. Um, in Andalusia we have great records. Uh, that sort of thing. So you know it all varies from place to place in terms of when is the uptake of literacy. When you know certain things like uh, Christian norms. You know when Christianity comes in, we tend to have better records because the church is really interested in keeping track of things. So you can kind of plot stuff a lot of the time by you know following christianization things like that over the period um i mean i would argue christianization is another one of the reasons why we're a little bit reticent about the medieval period as well because our own kind of modern sensibilities again are like oh well religion is bad even though we're still extraordinarily religious <laughs> so uh you know we, we've got a real tension around that but you know i am a big fan of christianization because it allows me to have some records which i love i love some records <laughs> Yeah, that's that's fascinating. Um, and I love the idea that the Middle Ages, its starting points and its finishing points are the product of Italian imperial infomercials. <laughs> that's going to stay with me. Um, and then right at the centre of your book, you start asking about all the kinds of people that those sorts of imperial mindsets exclude, downplay, don't engage with at the time and don't encourage us to engage with now. Um, mm. Do you want to tell us about that fantastic moment at the heart of the book? Yeah, I really tried to centralize the place of, you know, others in the Middle Ages. So, you know, the people that we don't often get to hear from, because the guys we get to hear from all the time are kings, nobles, and churchmen, right? And they are, a lot of the time, straight white guys with a lot of money. Um, so I really wanted to make the point of that there are other people in the Middle Ages, you know, first of all, women. You may have heard of them. <laughs> they're, they're a little bit more, a little bit more than half the population. Um, and you could be forgiven a lot of the time if you look at kind of a lot of the history that's written about the medieval period for not realizing that women exist. Because, you know, medieval people kind of drink women as an afterthought. You know, they're very much in the Aristotelian mood of, of thought. And they sort of feel like, well, you've got your man. And then you've got a woman and she's like an inside out man. It's just kind of like, it's kind of like a man, but not, right? So it's like your default player is a man. So I spent some time kind of discussing why that is. And then I move on to other sections of society that are massively important, but overlooked. So Jewish people, rather a lot of them about in the medieval period. And they're absolutely like integral, for example, to high finance, um, and indeed a lot of time forced to be involved in finance, um, which this covers, but you know, without them, it's almost impossible to get a really good trading network going. Um, I talk a lot about uh, people with leprosy who are absolutely everywhere in the medieval period. Um, leprosy is endemic to medieval Europe and it's a real problem. And people are really sort of grappling with what you do with people who have a disease that's really terrible and very frightening and people don't want to catch it. So they're kind of unwilling to be around it, but everyone knows you need to help them. And this sort of space that people with leprosy inhabit as a result of that. Um, and uh, I tried to talk about uh, gay people. Well, what we would call gay people, right? Because the, the thing is in the medieval period, there's no such thing as being gay, just like there's no such thing as being straight. They don't have a conception of sexuality as such. Um, for them, sexuality is kind of like um, a series of actions. 
So you can be a sodomite or not. But the thing is that like being a sodomite is like a very broad church because a sodomite is just anyone who has non-procreative sex. So you could be a sodomite if you are having oral sex with your wife, mm. right? As a man that would, so it was like, welcome to the club. You're in sodomy club. But of course, anyone that we would call gay is definitely a sodomite because well, well, you know, cis, cis gay, um, because they cannot engage in procreative sex. So they are therefore by default sodomites. And it's really interesting because there is a tendency, especially among, you know, homophobes and that sort of thing now to say, oh, well, in the Middle Ages, because everyone was very religious, there's no such thing as gay people. And it's like, no, they're people are being pretty gay, you know, so we've got, and we've got like love letters that, you know, nuns send back and forth to each other, or, you know, people who are like caught repeatedly having gay sex. And um, it's interesting. So, you know, like uh, in Florence, for example, we'll say um, when sodomy laws are brought in at the end of the medieval period, because uh, people just start getting a lot more head up about being gay at the end of the medieval period in the, it's, you know, it's kind of like neither here nor there a lot of the other time. I mean, people don't like it, but there's no sodomy police and literally the Italian city states set up sodomy police at the end of the medieval period. Um, and, but even if you get caught, it's sort of this thing where you get find a couple lira the first time, then that doubles, then that triples, then that quadruples. And then I think it's like on the sixth time, they are like, we are going to kill you. Right. So obviously that's bad because I'm against corporally punishing people for being gay, but it's also interesting because what we can see from things like that is that it's not necessarily the being gayness. It's the getting caught mm. that they have a problem with their, where they're like, tighten your shit up. I said, <laughs> like, stop getting caught. And so it's more like this wanting to paint a veneer of respectability over society that we see. Um, and along with that part and parcel, another group of others that we talk about are sex workers mm. who are seen as absolutely necessary for the functioning of urban life in the medieval period. But again, they inhabit this really liminal space because it's it's not necessarily good to be a sex worker, but it's not... It, it, it's also not the way that we think about it now. Like we tend to think about sex work now as like, oh, it's this thing. And if you do it once that defines your entire life and you'll be absolutely, you know, damaged and rent asunder by the fact that you ever did sex work. Whereas for medieval people, it's like, well, we need to have sex workers. It's not great. Okay. So ideally, if you could go ahead and repent before you die and just go get married. Great. Okay. Then, you know, all bets are off. But of course the flip side of that is if you don't repent, before you die, then you die out of communion with the church. And at the same time, individuals within the church are making a great deal of money off of sex work. So, you know, there's a big question mark about who gets to be respectable there. And surprise, surprise, it's well-connected rich men. But mm. the point is that, you know, when we tend to say the medieval period, everyone just thinks, right, right, knights on horses, maybe there's a monk there. Um, there's kings and princesses, and maybe there's a Viking. But there's this whole, these whole huge groups of people that are there immensely important and very interesting. And I think it behooves us all to just kind of have a think about all the different types of people who exist in the medieval period. Yeah. Yeah, that's fascinating. Thank you. That's really great. And um, you use the phrase there, you could be a sodomite. And it's that sort of aspirational pep talk content that we have you. on our website. So <laughs> thank you. Uh, thank you for that. Um, and you know, I'd love to talk to you about the challenge of writing this book because um, the challenge of um, selection and compression and saying things in incredibly tight spaces often must have been 
immense, but it also means that you bring together things in a really fruitful way. And one of the things I loved is the focus on, uh, I hope I'm going to say this word rightly now, um, phallusocracies, which sounds like, you know, yep. a whole society is built around the phallus, which I presume is not <laughs> what it is. Um, mm. But this, you know, having, we often think about the Roman Empire, we talk about their roads. You just mentioned knights on horses. Holy Roman Empire is such an important power in this period. And we think of this great land mass. Um, but actually, this is true of the Roman Empire as well. But, but you know, you call our attention to places like Venice and Genoa mm -hmm. and also the Vikings, whose power is built on sea and ships. I wonder yes. if you talk us a little bit about, about that section of the book. Mm, yeah, it's really uh, quite an interesting one, I think, because actually it's people who have great shipping lines that are in many ways the, the best off in the medieval period. And, and that's and that's just a fact. You know, we, when we think about the power of Venice or the power of Genoa, it's completely down to their absolute domination of shipping lines in the medieval period. So, you know, this is how you end up with Venetian colonies in Croatia and on the Greek islands and, you know, out on, even in Constantinople. Um, one of the big ways that the Black Death comes in to Europe is uh, through Genoese salt traders um, because they, they were out on the Crimean Peninsula when it happened to get sacked by uh, some Mongols who had the plague, you know, and, and that's, and this is how things move through Europe. So it's interesting because the, the, the city states there, you know that they've got a landmass, but actually every single thing about them that makes them powerful, that makes them extraordinarily well off has to do with how they can move. And it's an interesting thing because people often talk about the world being a bigger place um, in the medieval period, which it certainly was. And, you know, we estimate that most things can only move about 30 miles a day. And that's kind of like what's in striking distance for either you're a really good walker and you don't get tired or you've got a horse. But ships move very, very quickly, actually. And so we know that if you really want to move things around, you can do it by ship extremely quickly. And so, for example, the Vikings, they end up moving all over. They We've got evidence that the Vikings were in Baghdad at a point in time, you know, and they are working at the court in Constantinople. They're shipping things back and forth. You know, they're shipping furs from the north, occasionally polar bears which is apparently a big, uh, a really big royal flex is to get a hold of a polar bear and be like, polar bear, got a polar bear, you know, and the Vikings will bring you a polar bear for the right price, you know, and that sort of thing. Um, so it's, it's quite interesting because we do tend to think about the Middle Ages as being this quite landbound thing, yeah. but the way to be actually very rich and important and well-connected and to have a lot of prestige comes down to can, do you have a boat actually? And, um, you know, this will end up having huge repercussions for things like um, pilgrimage, or it has a lot of um, repercussions for going on crusade. So the Venetians really control whether or not, you know, you can go to Jerusalem later on and, and that sort of thing. Um, and it also is really quite interesting because it is very Roman in a way in that, you know, the thing about the Roman Empire really is control of the Mediterranean. Um, yeah, sure, they have outposts like up here in Britannia, but that, I mean, that that isn't what is important about their empire. What's important about their empire is that, you know, you've got an amphora that came from Tunis. You know, that's yeah. that's the thing. And there are plenty of city states who are willing to do that for you in the medieval period. So, yeah, I think that one of logistics is an overlooked and really important thing in the medieval period, because that's how you get all of the good and interesting things. Like that's how you get your spices in from Indonesia, which we know people were doing. You know, there's someone is coming on a boat from mm -hmm. Indonesia to the Middle East and then it's moving across, you know, and 
and God bless them because everybody likes nutmeg, really. So. <laughs> My husband does not like nutmeg, but let's what? park that. Let's park that counter evidence briefly. Um, I mean, it's interesting hearing you talk about the Romans' relationship, Rome's relationship with the Mediterranean, because they, they give it that name, don't they? And I mm-hmm. presume the Medi in Mediterranean is the same as the Medi in Medieval. They're, they're both yeah. different kinds of, of middles, and they're doing that weird thing of both centering and then, certainly in the case of the Medieval, sort of getting rid of and saying, well, this, mm-hmm. is, the, this is the intervening bit, the interval. Um, and you talked too about the kind of legacy of what places like Venice are doing. But I, I guess another legacy is what happens at, towards the end of a period with with colonization. That um, that yes. is also all about shipping, logistics, mm-hmm. um, keeping control of the sea. Who has boats? Who is able to get um, get around? Um, that's um, another example of that. Um, so it's a comic history and yes. a, sorry, a graphic history. And right at the end of the book, you acknowledge um, Meg John Barker, who was in my head too, as I was reading the book, thinking, I wonder what, what the relationship here is in terms of whether there was a model or um, someone, um, a potential kind of way of, of doing this kind of thing. But do you mind telling us about the, the sheer kind of the praxis, the, the challenge of um, putting history into um, relatively short pieces of text accompanying um, very particular images and across the space of a book. Um, yeah, can we hear a bit more about what that was like? Yeah, so I owe a great debt to Meg John Barker, who is a good friend of mine, um, because you know, in the first place, I was made aware that one could do this because of their, their queer graphic history. Um, and I thought it was a really great medium. I've always loved comics. If you could see my bookshelves, uh, they are basically just a bunch of comics, but that's fine. Um, <laughs> so, you know, that, that was something that was really appealing to me. So um, when I I started thinking about this I went to them first and I said do you think that this is something that has legs and how how did you do it and they kind of showed me their method um and so what they did and what I then copied because I thought it was really good and useful um is so it's a very short number of words per page it's 140 wow. words per page wow. which is not much <laughs> um and so what I would do is I would write what the 140 words were and then in another like another font color, I would then say any words that I wanted in speech bubbles for what the picture would be that I had in my mind. And then I would describe what the picture was that I had in my mind. Um, And often I think you can really tell, um, uh, Neil's done a really great job on the illustrations here. I would go find medieval images and say, okay, well, this is what I had in mind. You know, here is here is an actual image of this. And he would then adapt those. Um, So that was kind of the process and kind of like thinking in that way and putting everything down on one page and then moving to another is how I did it. You know, I I had an outline first, obviously. um, And I'm a huge believer in outlines, just a really big one. But it's one thing saying, I'm going to cover all these things and then realizing that you have a very few number of words. And then fun fact, Right before I was due to turn it in, I was like, ah, yes, here we go. I'm bagging on time. I'm ready to turn this into my editor. I will just have a quick edit before I send it over to Kira. And then in the I got back to the beginning and I was like, huh, these uh, pages seem like they're really short on the word limit. What's, go- what's going on here with this? Um, and I came to realize that at some point in the book, I'd say about a third of the way through, I convinced myself that it was 280 words per page. So I had actually written twice as much for the great majority of it. And then I had to go through and cut half out, which, um, you know, 
I thought 280 words was not much to get all of these points across, but it will help you sharpen things up when you know that you have written too much. Um, so that was an interesting process as well, because it was sort of looking at it and going, no, no, literally what half of this can go. Um, so it was, I wouldn't recommend that people write a book in this manner, but on the other hand, you can kind of say, all right, well, if, if, if half of this has to go, well, what are the absolute bare bone essentials that I want people to understand? And I think that's also really useful for a general audience because, you know, obviously as someone who's trained as an academic, I can waffle, you know, I got, I got a hundred thousand words for you. Don't worry about it, but not everybody wants a hundred thousand words, right? You know, the entire point of this is that it's entry level. It knocks every single little nail you kind of need in place to get a broad idea of what the middle ages is. And then you can pick a thing that you're interested in and go on and read from there. So that was good, but also very stressful <laughs> at the time. Um, and uh, you know, I think, the way that I structured the timeline, though, initially was I looked at my syllabus for first year courses. And I was like, so what is what are like the major threads that I want people to pick up through? And so it's kind of like Roman inheritance, uh, you know, monasticism, uh, the concept of the other, the imperial papal rivalry Vikings, the rise of cities, you know, all these things. So it, it falls a chronological order, but kind of loops back through, you know, the rise of Islam we cover. Mm -hmm. um, the, the, you know, I want ma to make sure that everyone has a good idea of what happened and in what order, mm -hmm. but you can't be too slavish with the details because everyone's just trying to figure out what medieval means, you know, like I can't really start going into like the production product of, of manuscripts, you know, it's not, it, it's not the time. It's not the time. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. And um, that's a really lovely insight into how, how it worked. Uh, did you have conversations too about kind of design, the design of the page? So if you're saying I'd like a certain illustration, did you also get to talk about where on the page that might fall? I'm looking at page 46 where the Vikings oh, yes. are literally, you know, they're, they are traveling between your two paragraphs. Um, yes. Yeah. Yeah, so um, Neil and I worked really closely on this. So basically, it, you know, it's a real shame because a lot of it got done by Zoom. We were we started pre-pandemic and we were kind of like hanging out in like the Tate members room and having a coffee and, you know, chatting. And that was a lot more fun. And then later on, it all moved to Zoom. So um, we would just kind of go through them and he would ask me questions about what it was that I, the notes that I put through. And we would talk about that. Yeah. So we would say, you know, he had some really brilliant ideas Um you know, like that one of the river flowing through the paragraphs, that's all Neil. Um, there is also, I think earlier on in the beginning, there is a thing about when we're talking about how various um, various cultures kind of weave together. So here it is. It is on page nine. So uh, the Germans, yeah. Moors and Greeks and this um, everybody kind of like stitching into a part of a tapestry mm. was his idea, which I really enjoyed. Um, I did try to think as I, so mo a lot of the time, if it's broken up and there's a picture in between, that's something I put in because I'd realized that either I changed topics or there was something that I was explicitly trying to give a picture to. Um, and then sometimes it was just like, we're doing the same thing over and over again. We really need to break this up, you know? So that, that also um, had an impact in terms of, we just didn't want people to get too visually bored. Um, so there, sometimes it is, a genuine kind of artistic choice on uh, on the part of Neil. Sometimes it is me trying to underline a particular concept. And sometimes it's us just being like, oh, we've been doing the same thing for a little too long. Break it up, break it up. <laughs> you know? 
<laughs> yeah, that's fascinating. Thank you. And then, Ellen, I think my last question, you've both done such a terrific job with this. Um, so it's really exciting to hear about how that worked. I guess the, the other big challenge for you is um, that you were, you're, you're introducing and describing a topic which um, the majority of people will have fairly hazy understanding of, but at the same time, will also bring with them all kinds of assumptions about what it means to describe something as, as medieval, this is very mm. medieval, etc. So, you're, you, you know, in the book, you find yourself constantly saying things and denying things, which I think, I think that's how Eddie Izzard says you should sing the American National Anthem. <laughs> yeah, so the like confirming and denying. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. You, I mean, that sort of, that's kind of a dialogic state you find yourself in a lot of the time. And I, yeah, can you tell us a bit about that? <laughs> yeah, so I mean, I actually introduced it. When I first wrote this, I kind of had introduced the entire way through a, a kind of antagonistic character who was questioning things and mm. uh, putting forward ideas. And he's still there at the beginning of the book mm. um, to frame things. And my editor, Kira, said, uh, look, I took him out a lot of the time because I hate that guy. <laughs> And I was like, well, yeah, me too, girl. You know, like that's that's kind of the point. And I'm I'm dealing with that guy constantly. And it's it's really interesting because the thing about the medieval period is that people don't really know that much about it. It's simply not taught in schools. It's not considered to be a kind of bedrock part of the quote unquote history that we're taught because the majority of history that we're taught, again, is largely nationalistic in character. If you aren't a massively important place in the medieval period, it might not care that much about teaching medieval history, you know, you know things of that nature. Um, and also it's just really complicated. And what does that even mean? And it really varies place to place. So it's, it's a very difficult thing to do. Um, but as a result, people also really feel like they know they've got the medieval period, right? It's, it's very much one of those confidence things. So they don't need to know about the medieval period because they, everything they know about the medieval period is it was bad. Um, the church was hiding under your bed, like some kind of church cop and was going to jump out and stop you from doing science, which apparently the Romans had, the Romans had science. Uh, <laughs> the church suppressed it. Nobody bathed. 1066 question mark and then the renaissance and like that's what people know and interestingly people are really um the, people are really wedded to that narrative even though you know it, it doesn't it's not actually something that bears any semblance of reality to, to what's on the ground they're, they're a little bit poisoned by voltaire a lot of things are Voltaire's fault. you know voltaire is the one who got really mad about the medieval period and the church and calls it bad and and a lot of our thinking is is based on that. But you do kind of have people who will become quite reactionary. You know, I'll have people who have not studied, they've not read a book on the medieval period in their life. And they will argue up and down with me on Twitter about the field of study that I have dedicated my entire life to. You know, they don't speak a word of Latin, but they are absolutely certain that medieval people didn't bathe and the cop, like the church cops were burning witches. And it to a certain extent, it doesn't matter what you say to them because it's almost like a belief. It's an origin story. So, you know, what I want to do with um, this is make it clear that, you know, the medieval period can be really accessible. It's just that people haven't done that yeah. yet, really. Um, so we all have the ability to learn a little bit more about this, but we can't do it until people put the things out there that are public facing and easy. You know, I think one of the big problems that we face with countering this narrative is that people find it daunting as well. You know, no one necessarily wants a huge tome that's going to really get into Latin transliterations and, you know, 
thinking about bead. Now, of course, I love to think about bead. Everybody likes to think about bead if you're a medieval historian, but the average person on the street doesn't care. What they want you to do is tell them, well, li literally, what, what's a narrative here? Like, yeah. how do I know what yeah. happened in the medieval period? And so I'm trying to not fight with these people who, you know, spoil my every waking moment, but also that guy is at the very beginning of the book. Because <laughs> I'm trying to, I, but I try to like, to cast audiences in opposition to him because I'm like, you're not that guy. No, no, you know, no, you, you're coming with me. Right. And that's, that's what it's all about. Right. It's like bringing people in and letting them be on the team. That's got some, uh, some kind of understanding of the medieval period. You know, I'm very much against the kind of insular idea of history is that it's something that is done by academics behind closed doors. Mm. You know, I think that history is for everybody. It's just that it hasn't always been portrayed that way. Yeah, that's fascinating. And I think when you were origin stories in 1066, it's also that part of the kind of weddedness to those earlier narratives um, is that if you just count the Middle Ages, then suddenly you get to start telling stories about your own national identity mm -hmm. um, from, from a moment of state formation, whether that be Spain or Germany or mm -hmm. um, something that looks a bit like Britain happening um, <laughs> towards the end of the period. Um, yeah, so good luck with that guy. I hope, I hope, although <laughs> you don't want readers to be that guy, I hope, I hope he comes round. I love the fact he's, his first image is him doing this and saying, well, this noise is doink doink. Um, yeah. You can have a noise for that. <laughs> um, Eleanor, congratulations. It's uh, a fantastic book. I'm really uh, thrilled to have got to hear more about um, your thinking behind it, the process of it. And I will certainly be thinking about um, uh, the infomercial, infomercial, yeah, I can't say <laughs> infomercials of the Italian imperial kind. Um, when I think about the Middle Ages, I still don't feel like you've told me anything about being forty to sixty. But you know, I will, I will soldier on. <laughs> I'm still on. working on that. Okay, you know, give, give me a couple of years, and I'll report back. It'll Maybe be that's fine. your sequel. Thank you ever so much. <laughs> Thanks so much, Andy. It's a pleasure as always.